Welcome back to the Growth and Jams podcast. My name is Saul and I'll be your host here again today. Today I'm sitting down with my sister, Andrea Salazar. She is currently a PhD student at Harvard University. We talked about a variety of things, which include some of the challenges she faces as a woman within STEM, her educational path, things she learned as a result of her relationships, family dynamics, and in general, all the things that led to the contribution and culmination of who she is today. I'm very glad that we had this conversation and I hope you all enjoy the show today. It's great to have you here today. Just to start and lay a little bit of the foundation, why don't you tell the audience about how we know each other, where you went to undergrad and what you got your degree in, and then where you're at now and what you're currently doing. Yeah. So I'm Andrea Salazar. I'm Saul's sister. We met when I think we were eight. And uh, I remember it was at this park near my house. And I remember being really annoyed that he was a boy. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, if I'm going to get a new sibling, I hope it's a sister. <laughs> but uh, Saul and I are about the same age. So we went to middle school together, but different high schools. And so that's kind of how we know each other. I went to U Chicago for undergrad at the University of Chicago, and I studied physics, which was super fun. And now I am at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm getting my PhD in Earth and Planetary Sciences, which basically what I do is I use three-dimensional models to simulate the climates of other planets. And I try to say something about what are the best conditions to make a planet habitable for life? What are the best conditions to make a planet uninhabitable for life? And how likely is it that we're going to find alien life out there? That's so awesome. Before we even jump into the questions, I want to say one, congratulations on graduating from UChicago, getting into UChicago, and then also pursuing your your doctorate degree at Harvard. That's you know, not a small accomplishment. Those are both incredibly wonderful tasks. And I want to let you know that I'm very proud of you. I think although we're similar in age, you know, you're like six months older than me. I think I look up to you a lot as an older sibling in a lot of ways. So yeah, just want to let you know, incredibly proud of you. You're so awesome in all you do. And yeah, thank you for sharing that. For the audience that doesn't know, Andrea is a genius and she's downplaying it a lot. But Yeah, I hope we get to get a little bit more into your intellectual side as well in this. But yes, congratulations. Thank you so much. Of course, for the moment, let's talk a little bit about the path that it took for you to get to where you are now, maybe undergrad admissions, maybe some of your time in high school, some of the things that led to where you currently are right now. Yeah, so I kind of had an unconventional start into getting into science when I was really young my mom decided that I was going to do theater, which I mean, it was a great decision on her part. I loved theater. I was pretty much training. I did vocal training, a little bit of dance training, a lot of acting training from the time I was like six, all the way through high school, pretty much. And I was really into it. I really wanted to be on Broadway. So I did a lot of musical theater, both in school and in like the community. And yeah, that was what I was really interested in. And that's what I was totally convinced I was going to do. And Then when I was 16, I took my first physics class at my high school. I went to Brandeis and it was just like really 
overwhelming because I pretty much immediately realized that physics is what I wanted to do, but it was something I had never thought I was going to do. I had always been interested in space, but more in a, it's very far away. I don't understand it kind of way, but yeah, it was a lot. It happened all at once. And so I kind of had quarter life, no, not even a quarter life crisis, like a, you know, a 10th life crisis or something. Because I realized I had to change my entire career path. And I'd been, you know, preparing for the last 16 years to do theater. And so I kind of went insane. And I watched every documentary I could. And I read every book that I could. And it created kind of a sense of inadequacy. Because I, I realized that everyone else who was doing what I wanted to do had been going to space camp and studying physics their whole life. And I just felt like I had to play a lot of catch up. And I'd always been really into math. I'd always been good at math. But you don't study math the same way when you think you're going to do theater versus when you think you're going to do physics. And so, yeah, for the for the next two years, it was just a lot of studying. I did a lot of studying outside of school because I felt, you know, this need to catch up. And when undergrad admissions came around, I had immediately been interested in UChicago because their whole advertisement towards prospective students is kind of, we want students that are very multifaceted. We want students that like STEM, but also like the humanities and they're a liberal arts school. So it kind of tracks with that. And so I felt like a, a really big connection to Chicago in particular. But at the same time, I realized that I wanted to go to, you know, a very prestigious school, even though I didn't necessarily have the grades or the qualifications to get in. I mean, I didn't have any internships in science. I didn't have any research experience. I had my extracurriculars were pretty much like president of thespian society. And that was it. So I applied to all the Ivy League schools very boldly. I got brutally rejected from all of the Ivy League schools, except for UChicago. Uh, I guess UChicago is not an Ivy League school, but you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I felt so lucky to get into UChicago. And so I went and uh, it was the best decision I've ever made. Uh, I loved UChicago. The thing that I noticed right away, though, when I arrived there was that every single person was smarter than me immediately because I went to public school my whole life and I don't have anything bad to say about public school. I loved my public school education, but you arrive at UChicago and everyone there went to some private elite mm -hmm. school where they've been learning general relativity since they were like 16. And yeah, it was like, you get kind of an imposter syndrome, especially being a woman in STEM. That was like a big part of it. And so my whole, oh, I got to study all the time thing. It just kind of got worse in in college and I struggled a lot with figuring out my identity and kind of trying to balance. I want to be really successful and taken seriously in STEM, but at the same time, I'm a woman and like the things about me that are feminine are important to me. And I didn't want to sacrifice those things, but anyway, we can get more into that a little bit later because that's a big topic for me. But basically I worked really hard, studied all the time. And then I started my second year, I started doing research with a professor on campus, Dorian Abbott, who studies exoplanet climates. And I immediately fell in love with what he was doing. I thought it was the perfect intersection of math and physics and then climate science. And so, yeah, after that, I just did a bunch of research. I went to a ton of conferences and learned how to express my scientific ideas. And when graduate submissions came around, I found that I was in a very different position than I was when I applied to undergrad. I'd done a lot of work, so I had the right credentials. I think I was a pretty competitive applicant, and it all worked out really well for grad school admissions. And now I'm at Harvard. I'm pretty much doing the same thing I was doing in undergrad. I, I study a lot, but it's a little bit less intense now. Uh, I study exoplanet climate dynamics, and it's, yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm having a great time so far. That's so awesome. Thank you for sharing. And something to highlight for the audience as well is I think 
you know, your perseverance in attaining the goal that was getting into Harvard. I don't think you mentioned it, but maybe talk a little bit about when that dream or that idea sparked of I want to go to Harvard happened and, you know, what that eventually looked like into you getting in now. Yeah. So when I was an undergrad, um, to be honest, whether or not I was wanted to go to grad school kind of wasn't ever a question. I knew that if I wanted to be successful in my field, I had to go to grad school. And so of course you kind of, you set your sights as high as you can, the same way that I did in undergrad. And I I actually wasn't sure what graduate school I wanted to attend. You like look at the list of like top 10 schools and you're like, oh, I want to go to one of those. So I applied to uh, a bunch of the Ivy League schools, just basically the top 10. And I I got into about six schools. And the biggest part of choosing a grad school for me was my advisor. I knew that I had to be a really good fit. I wasn't interested in being in an environment that was really competitive and unhealthy for my mental health. And so, yeah, I actually didn't realize that Harvard was the school I really wanted to go to until I visited the second time. I visited once really early in the application process. And then again, when I got in and it just kind of felt right in the moment. I actually thought that I wanted to go to MIT because MIT, I think is kind of the school to go to. But when I toured there, I just felt like it wasn't a great fit for me. Just the culture there was just different than what I wanted, but Harvard was the perfect blend. And so I've got a great advisor. All the people that I've met have been really great, really supportive. I think that the competitiveness that you feel in undergrad, it's not as bad in grad school. I think everyone's kind of in the same boat here. We all know we're smart. There's no reason for us to compete. So we just kind of support each other. And yeah. Yeah. It's very awesome. I'm glad you ended up there. I'm glad that you found the right fit because that is really important. I'm not sure who said this, but I've heard before that just grad schools in general are about 60% of the program and about 40% of like the cultural fit and the people that you meet when you're admitted or when you're touring or just the feel that you get from the school itself. So Mm -hmm. it does play a large role. And I think it's great that you took that into consideration when you made your decision to talk a little bit about STEM adjacent before we get into the large discussion of, you know, a lot of your identity within STEM. Uh, You mentioned mental health and struggling a little bit with that, maybe at UChicago and finding a balance. What did that look like in terms of, you know, the rough moments and then also finding eventually what works for you now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that in undergrad, especially in a highly academic environment, I struggled a lot with imposter syndrome, which I think we'll talk about later when we talk about being a woman in STEM. But the hardest part was the culture at that school. I mean, I loved you, Chicago. I think this is just kind of the culture everywhere. It's, it's like you're in a competition with everyone to see who is the most miserable in that you're trying to figure out who stayed up the latest to work on some assignment, who got the smallest amount of sleep, who's had the most coffee that day, who's eaten the least that day. It's, it's so ridiculous. You like to sit down in the dining hall And someone will say, oh, I'm so tired. I only got four hours of sleep. And then someone will pipe in like, oh, yeah, well, I only got three hours of sleep. It's like, why are we bragging about this? But I fell into the trap, too. I mean, everyone wants to have four majors and have seven extracurriculars and be super busy. And so, you know, in the beginning, I wanted to major in physics and astrophysics and Russian because what I want more than anything else is to be an astronaut. And so I was like, oh, I'll just study Russian and learn Russian and easy, like whatever. And I also wanted to major in theater too, because I wanted to be well-rounded. And, you know, I obviously still love theater. And so I came in wanting to have four majors and it's just ridiculous. Like, I think the hardest part for me was realizing that I can be really, really good at one thing and I don't have to be like 50% good at 20 things. And I think it's sometimes it's more valuable to just pick the thing you really love and to commit your time to that. So UChicago has this slogan that I think the students invented. It's like, UChicago is where fun goes to die. <laughs> Clearly, we I all have, have heard that. that. A lot. Yes. Yeah, I think it's like notorious for that. 
And I think it's true in a lot of ways. I think that it's very easy at UChicago to fall into this trap of, you know, working too much and insomnia and all this. But I found that I just had to be really rigid with myself about my study schedule. I refused to work past like 11 p.m., which I mean, sounds like not that good of a time constraint, but, you know, I think it's important. So to this day, I, I hold really rigidly to my, I want to work in the morning and all throughout the day, but I'm not going to work too late into the night because it's just not going to work for me. And I also had to, you know, surround myself with the people who were going to support me. And I mean, all of my friends were, we were all kind of in that trap of like, who is working the hardest, but you, you have to choose your friends pretty carefully. And it was easy to kind of compete with people at UChicago, but yeah, you got, you got to work hard to find the people that are, that are there to like help you and not to hurt you. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that's a very easy trap to fall into, especially at at one of the schools that's elite like that, where almost every student is gunning for the most elite outcomes in terms of post-grad. Yeah. That's great to find that you found what works for you and that you've established and maintained the rigidity of the schedule so that you can set up you know, safe boundaries for yourself. That's great stuff. To jump into the discussion on your identity within STEM, why don't you talk about that and maybe some of the barriers that you faced, some of the challenges that you faced within that field, but also some of the victories as well. Yeah. So when I was in high school and I was like first getting into science, it was at a very formative age for me, just in general. I was 16. So I was both trying to figure out who I was as a person and also trying to figure out who I was going to be in terms of like my career in science. And I fell into this trap that I think a lot of women in STEM fall into where we think that no one's going to take us seriously unless we pretend that we are men. Or at least we kind of suffocate all of the things about ourselves that are stereotypically feminine. And so I decided when I was 16 that I wasn't interested in like romance. I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to have children. I pretended that I didn't have emotions because I thought that if I was emotional about things that people would see me as weak or I don't know. It, it was a really you know dangerous trap that I fell into. And at the same time, I also started dating someone who was a lot older than me. And it just kind of turned into this terrible cycle of pretending I was someone who I wasn't. And at the same time, letting men tell me the things about me that would make a good scientist, but they weren't really true to myself. And so um, I was in that relationship all throughout high school and then a little bit into college. And once I got to college, all of these things got even worse because I was surrounded by these people who were so smart. And I was presenting this version of myself that wasn't authentic, but people responded to it and liked it. And so it really solidified for a long time that I was someone who I wasn't. I was someone who studied all the time and nothing ever bothered me. And I, like for lack of a better word, I was like one of the boys. And I think that's kind of a toxic thing to fall into when it's not genuinely the kind of person that you are. And so I eventually got out of that relationship. And after a few months, I started dating someone new. His name was Ken. And uh, I think that in my second relationship, things were a lot different. I kind of knew from my first relationship and from my first year in college, I, I realized that the person I was becoming was not someone that I liked. And there were a lot of things about me that I was hiding. And I finally just realized that I can be who I am and be good at science. Like those two things aren't mutually exclusive. And so, um, yeah, in my second relationship, I think that was like a big goal of mine is I just, I didn't want to have to hide behind these like systemic ideas of what a woman in STEM needs to look like in order to be successful. And so I was in that relationship all throughout college. And I think it was a really good relationship for the both of us. We were both in physics. 
And I expected that to present a lot of problems because theoretically we should have been competing with each other. But I think that it just helped us grow in a lot of ways. And we studied together and I, I realized a lot of things about myself that I think made me a better scientist, but also a more genuine version of myself. And yeah, I had to kind of shed all of these like silly ideas that I had come up with and that other people had like come up with and forced onto me. And I still struggle with a lot of those things. I mean, any woman in STEM will tell you that the imposter syndrome feelings don't ever really go away. And sometimes it feels like STEM wasn't built for us. It can be like really little things that make you feel that way, whether it's just the fact that you've never had a female physics teacher, or, you know, sometimes even I actually saw this TikTok the other day that I thought was so true, but I'm going to share it because I think it's, it's like a really good example. A girl was talking about how she had a test in her computer science class. And one of the questions was trying to make an analogy with Yu-Gi-Oh cards and, and computer science. And obviously like, it was a male instructor who wrote this test, but you know, women don't play with Yu-Gi-Oh cards when we're younger, at least most of us don't. And so it, that's just like an example of how maybe that test was a little easier for the boys because they did have experience with Yu-Gi-Oh cards mm -hmm. or sometimes it's baseball or sometimes, you know, whatever. And it's just like those little tiny things. It doesn't have to be like a huge aggression against women, but you know, these little things kind of add up. And so something I've always been really passionate about is making sure that younger women see the work that I'm doing, even though I'm still like a very junior scientist and I haven't like made it yet. But I do a lot of like classroom outreach. I have a few friends from college who are now teaching. And so I've gone into their classrooms and I've kind of presented a little bit about what I'm doing at like a very basic level because sometimes it's like elementary school kids. But I think any kid thinks it's cool if you show them an exoplanet. And my mom teaches calculus. And so I went into her classroom a few weeks ago to kind of show them how I use calculus every day. And I think those little things are really important for just showing what a scientist looks like because a scientist doesn't look like anything. It's just a person who's a scientist. But I think that that's kind of an important thing that I wish I had seen when I was younger. Most definitely. And representation is really important and key from a young age to see that there's people like you, you know, out there kicking ass at like the highest level, essentially, of science. And thank you for sharing all that for your candor and your ability to share. Of course. I think it's really important to have diversity of thought and experience within not only this podcast, but like within general intake of information. So I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're sharing very valuable information. I guess a great jumping point would I be into, I mean, a little bit more about what you learned about yourself as a result of your relationships. I think you present yourself above all things very maturely. You handle things much more maturely than I think Jay and I do. <laughs> but maybe talk a little bit about that and where that comes from. And maybe, again, what you learned about yourself as a result of those relationships. Yeah, I think that, you know, everyone always says this to me, like, oh, I think that you're so mature in your relationships. But, you know, in retrospect, when I look back, there are so many things that I wish that I had done differently. I think that I don't want to get too deep into it. I know Jay talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast, but, you know, our parents divorced when we were really young and they're both in relationships. Um, no relationships are perfect. And I think that your ideas of what makes a healthy relationship comes a lot from the examples that your parents set. and you know, I, I came in with like really strong ideas of what I thought a relationship should be like. And through at least my first relationship, they all got very convoluted and very confused. And because I was in that space where I thought that I couldn't have any emotions, I just never communicated when something upset me. And I never laid any boundaries for myself because I had this idea in my head that I wanted to be the cool girl, like the cool girlfriend who never is upset about anything. But when you let, especially an older man, just do whatever he wants, at some point you're just being walked all over and not treated very well. And I'm not going to say it's all his fault because, you know, at no point did I like lay any boundaries for myself. But 
that was just like a huge problem. And I brought those problems into my second relationship with Ken too, where I just didn't know how to communicate when something upset me because I had this overwhelming fear that he was going to think that I was crazy or that I was emotional or that I, you know, didn't deserve to have these feelings that I did to the point where I was gaslighting myself in my head saying things like, well, you're overreacting. You just need to like calm down and think about this and then it'll pass. And that's just what I did always. I just never brought anything up. I just waited until it didn't bother me anymore, but that's so unhealthy. And you and Jay last week talked a lot about like communicating these really difficult things with your partner. And that's like a huge part of having a mature and healthy relationship. And I really admire those things and your guys' relationships, because those are still things that I'm really learning. And it, it kind of wasn't until Ken and I broke up because we both went to different grad schools and stuff, but it wasn't until after that, that I was able to kind of look back and realize that, you know, the relationship would have been so much better and so much richer if I had been able to just communicate my feelings and not be afraid of negative feedback based on that. And so I think I like to believe that I'm very mature in my relationships, that, you know, there's still so much to learn. And, and I think as I become more confident in myself, I am becoming more confident in my ability to have a relationship with really strong communication and just like a really healthy foundation I think that people think that I am very independent and mature in my relationships because I, throughout all of my relationships, I've been kind of blase about them, maybe. Like, I've been like, oh, we probably won't get married or end up together forever. And that's okay. And, and I do think that that's a good thing to have in a relationship. But at the same time, I mean, when you meet someone that is perfect for you, I think that it is good to be able to put in the work and to do the work on yourself and together with that person to make that relationship long term and fulfilling. and. I think I'm not quite there yet. I think I'm still learning a lot about myself, but yeah. Very well said. Very great insight. Thank you for sharing that as well. Relationships are always weird to talk about, but did a great job. Yeah, I feel like with your siblings, you think you know what their relationships are like, but maybe you don't. <laughs> Very true. I mean, with as tight knit of a community as a family is, like we really don't know the daily ins and outs, I would say, of each other's lives very well, which is probably a good thing. We don't need to be up each other's butt, but... Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> it's very cool to talk about some of these things that we haven't talked about before. And cool to see your insight and the way that you think into them. Because, I mean, the way that you think about it in hindsight is like really mature and shows a lot of growth and insight. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that stuff. Not too sure what a good jumping point from here is. We can talk <laughs> about a little bit of, you know, the family dynamics of some of the things that you've learned. Or we can talk about long-term career goals. Where would you like to take the conversation? I'll give you the reins. Yeah, I guess we can stay on the more personal side for now. We can talk about family dynamics. Do you mean like between us as a blended family or like with my dad's family or with... Honestly, all of it, because I think it's all contributed a lot into who you are. And we both have the, you know, fortunate and unfortunateness of a very complex set of two families. So feel free to yeah, share, I guess, in any way that those families have contributed or things you've taken away from them that have helped shape you into who you are. Yeah. Well, I definitely agree with you with like the complexity of our family. Sometimes when I meet new people and I'm explaining my siblings also, I feel like I need to draw a map because yes. I have eight siblings total, but they all have varying degrees of like blood relatedness to me. So it's always very complicated, but I guess we can start like, you know, after my parents got divorced, which I totally agree with what Jay said last time, the best decision for everyone involved was for them to get a divorce. Like I can't imagine my parents being together now. But, you know, in the beginning, it was weird because it was just me and my mom and Jay and Sophia. 
uh, my two other siblings. And it was strange to say the least when she met your dad, Luis, and they started dating. And I remember we didn't even know they were dating until we went to go meet you guys at the park. And like I said, I was like annoyed that you weren't a girl because I was like, oh, I wanted a best friend. And I think that for us, like us two specifically, for me at least, it felt weird when we were growing up because we were so close in age and we even went to the same school for a while. And it was just hard to know what our relationship actually was. And so for me, at least, I think I kind of just avoided you for a little bit. Like I didn't try that hard to get close to you. And I regret it now that we're older. But, you know, you and Jay had like a weird bond where you sort of loved each other and sort of hated each other for a while there. (laughs) And it was weird growing up. And it was also really hard because I felt like I was pretty young when my parents kind of decided that we were old enough to be the middlemen between them. I kind of felt, especially I felt a lot of responsibility as kind of the communicator on behalf of me and sometimes Jay to an extent and my sister, Sophia, who's younger than us. And it was a hard position. And I have felt for a really long time, there's a lot of politics involved in having divorced parents that you don't realize. Like it's something as simple as, you know, your brother graduates college and you have to decide who to sit with because, you know, maybe they don't want to sit in the same place. And to you, it kind of seems stupid, but now that now that I'm a little older, maybe I understand it better. But when you're young, you're kind of like, why can't my parents just be friends and like talk to each other? And I think that's really hard. There's obviously it's way more complicated than like an eight-year-old could understand. But yeah, I think that having that responsibility to kind of be the middleman between your parents when you're so young, it, it's hard, but it also made me very self-sufficient. I remember that when my I think this was maybe before my mom met your dad, where she decided to go back to school and get her teaching degree. And by the way, my mom has always been a huge source of inspiration for me. That woman is amazing. She mm-hmm. she went through a divorce and then she immediately wanted to do this huge career change. She went back to school while she had three children at home. And I mean, I, I can't say enough how much my mom has inspired me and she's always supported my career. And I, I definitely wouldn't be the person I am today without her. But while she was going back to school, I mean, we were still really young. And I remember there would be nights when I would like take one of the cookbooks off the shelf and just try to cook a meal for Jay and Sophia because I felt like, well, mom's gone. I mean, she's off doing like what she needs to do. I never fault her for that. And so I just felt like I needed to take care of my siblings. And I think that to this day, I kind of just feel like everyone always calls me the mom friend, which I think is kind of strange. But, you know, I think that 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 has kind of like followed me my whole life. I feel like I just really want to take care of people. And I think it probably all started from the family dynamics. I'll shift a little bit to my dad's family, which is like so different. I I don't know if you you probably experienced this when you were younger, like going from one household to another. I felt Mm -hmm. like it was a different version of myself at each house. Most yeah. Definitely. And it was weird because I don't remember constructing those two versions. They just kind of existed. And some of it was cultural. My dad is Peruvian. And I've always felt that there's just kind of a different expectation from me there. I don't want to say that my dad believes in gender roles, but I think he does. In, in a way, I think it's just kind of ingrained in him. And so like, he, okay, for example, he has seating arrangements at his dinner table where he sits at the head and my stepmom sits to his left and I sit to the left of her because I'm like the oldest woman, but my brother sits to the right of my dad because he's like the oldest boy. And mm-hmm. I don't think my dad ever meant for this to happen, but like, I think that we just felt for a long time that Jay was the oldest son and he was the one that was like going to do something amazing. And when I decided to go into physics, my dad really surprised me by being so supportive, a hundred percent supportive. And was like, you are going to do amazing things. Like I believe in you and 
all of these things. But there were people in his family, especially like some of the older men in his family that thought it was like funny, I guess that that's what I wanted to do. Or they thought it was, I don't know. I remember one time I was telling someone in his family, I can't remember who, that I was going to go study physics and they laughed and they were like, that's so cute. I was just, I didn't understand, but I, yeah, I don't know. It's like, my dad's side of the family has always been very different and we didn't see them a lot, but my dad's side of the family believes a lot in presentation of yourself. And I always felt like when I was there, I had to put on kind of like the best version of myself, but best being their definition and not mine. And so my dad's side of the family really values beauty and success and just kind of having the perfect little trophy family. And so that was kind of hard to switch between those two different things because at my mom's house, it definitely didn't feel like that. I also felt like we were just a tighter knit family in like a more genuine way versus the tight knitness that I felt like we were fabricating at my dad's house. And yeah, I mean, growing up with like divorced parents, it's always really weird. And I, I didn't spend that much time at my dad's house, to be honest. So that relationship like wasn't ever really as strong as my relationship is with my mom, but I can't say enough good things about my mom. So, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. For those that don't have divorced parents, I feel like they're very fortunate in a lot of ways, but I also feel like they're given a little bit of a disservice in a lot of ways, because I think as us coming from split families and blended families, it forces you to grow up really fast. And Mm -hmm. you touched on the self-sufficiency a little bit, but something that I took away from y'all growing up is that y'all were really independent and self-sufficient from a very young age, like cooking for yourselves, like really early on. And that like encouraged me to be more self-sufficient as well. Not to say that I wasn't raised to be self-sufficient, but I had never taken the agency to make those decisions for myself where I was like, I'm hungry. I'm going to go make myself breakfast before my mom asks me if I want breakfast or just the little things like that. But yeah, y'all have given me a much more enriching life experience. And I'm just very thankful for y'all as hard as blended families and divorced families are, it's been really great to get those diverse experiences as well as to learn from y'all as well so much. And just to take a step back as well, I don't blame you at all for avoiding me when we were kids because I was a weird kid. I had a lot of weird stuff going on, but. (laughs) Yeah. Also everyone in our middle school, like made it weird for us. Like everyone had so many questions that I didn't understand. And I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I wasn't a ginormous freak in middle school. (laughs) I I think you got bullied by proxy because of me. (laughs) I think I was already getting bullied for my, you know, choice of fashion, which was (laughs) the extra skinny, skinnier than girls were wearing jeans. The hot topic look. Yes. It was just something else. But something I always think back on is how in eighth grade science, somehow we ended up sitting together at the same table for the full year and everyone was looking around like, did she really just seat them together when they're siblings? (laughs) Quality stuff. I also remember talking to you as little as possible, (laughs) which is so sad because I feel like now that we're older and, you know, we don't see each other as much, but, you know, we're older and I feel like just over the past year, we've gotten a lot closer just on accident almost. And I yeah. wish that when we were younger, it had been that way. But also, you know, when you're 13, it was awkward. What are you going to do? Most definitely. Yeah. And I also can say that I think the time period in which we met each other was probably not conducive to forming like close knit relationships. Cause you're already at that age where you can kind of be like, I don't fully know them. And like, versus when you're at an age where your memory is not fully formed, but also good in a way because you're able to form different types of relationships. But yeah, roundabout way. It's been great to know you and to know the rest of our siblings as well. And y'all have really played an integral part in my life in shaping me into who I am. Likewise. I'm glad to hear some of the things that you've learned as well from your family dynamics, because I think we had completely differing 
experiences growing up as well in different households. I guess this would be a great place to jump into long term. We've talked a lot about who you are as a formative person, some of the things that played into who you are. Why don't you talk and share a little bit about what the goal is for you long term career wise, you know, personal wise, just some of the things that you're working towards and looking forward to. Yeah, for sure. So the like biggest thing that I want to do is I really want to be an astronaut. Um, I want it so bad, but you know, statistically, it's probably not going to happen. And I had to kind of come to terms with that in college. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to apply every year and do everything I can to do it. But you know, I had to make sure that the career that I was picking was a career that I loved and not one that I guess would be the most conducive to being an astronaut. So I could have been an engineer. That probably would have made my chances a little better, but I didn't want to be an engineer. So I figured I wanted to do something I actually loved. So in terms of wanting to be an astronaut in college, I studied Russian a little bit because astronauts have to speak Russian. I also took private pilot classes too. I had to stop because it turns out it's super expensive to get your pilot's license because you have to rent the plane and the fuel and the instructor. So it's like $500 an hour and you need 30 hours to get your pilot's license. It's ridiculous. So anyway, I flew a plane a few times. That was really fun, but I had to pause because I ran out of money (laughs) and I was in college. So um, maybe I'll pick that up soon. But yeah, that's just something I've always really wanted to do. And, you know, we're going to start sending manned missions to Mars. And I just, I can't imagine a more exciting thing to do. Like you're going to do something no one has ever done before. Even if you die, that's just like the coolest you could ever do. So yeah, that's something I I will always want to do. I will always apply. I will always do whatever I can to make that happen. But maybe on a more realistic note, I, I really, really love the research that I do. I work a lot with computers. So I, sometimes I use three-dimensional models that other people have written that are very complicated. But recently what I've been doing is I've been trying to write really simple models that like I myself could write on my computer and run in like 30 seconds. And the value of these models, even though they might not be as quantitatively accurate as some of these more advanced models, the thing about exoplanets is that we have no idea what they look like. We, we know roughly like how big they are, how far away they are from the sun, but we don't know anything about their atmospheres, their rotation rates, their obliquity, like nothing, like all these really important planetary parameters we don't have very good constraints on. And so if I'm going to run a model, I want to run a model that's really fast because I want to be able to run a lot of different experiments at once because there are just so many parameters to look at that running a model that takes two weeks just doesn't really make a lot of sense when we don't have any data to back it up anyway. So that's what I've been working on lately is I'm writing a model with Python just to simulate clouds on an exoplanet. Very hard work. It turns out it's much harder to write a model than to just use one that someone else has already written, but it's really fulfilling and it it helps me understand the physics at a deeper level. So that's what I'm doing now. I think for my, I don't know what I'm going to do for my thesis yet. Definitely something with exoplanets and habitability, but um, I haven't picked a topic yet. I think postgraduate, I want to do a postdoc, which is just like something you do after you get your graduate degree. And a lot of postdocs happen at NASA. So I would really love to go work at one of the NASA centers that do climate modeling. I think that if I already work at NASA, maybe they'll be more willing to make me an astronaut. We'll see how that goes. So that's probably what I want to do. I am also interested in teaching. I would love to stay in academia and teach at some point. I don't think I'll ever go into industry, but I think that's that's like the rough plan right now. I'd also love to live in Seattle someday because like Jay said in the last, like we are obsessed with Seattle. I don't know how our, our mom brainwashed us for that to be true, but <laughs> we're all obsessed with Seattle. So I would also love to move there someday. Awesome. Those are some great goals. And yeah, for those that have never been to Seattle, it's an incredibly special place. Beautiful. And yeah, I'm super excited for you going forward. Those are great things. And the running joke for the audience is that 
you are going to, you know, if you do become an astronaut and you do die going to Mars, that you will have died happy. That's true. <laughs> yes. But I hope that you become an astronaut and that you get to fulfill your dreams in doing that because that would be so incredible. The world is truly in the palm of your hand and you have so many great things going forward for you. I think you could choose anything of the things that you just listed and be incredible at it, like you said. So if there's anything else that you feel like we have left out in who you are and what you want to do, general advice, any of that, now would be the time that I open it up to you to share a little bit. Well, I think that the number one thing that I just always want to communicate to anyone, not just women who want to go into STEM, is that you know not everyone goes into college with the same background and the same resources. And it's okay to feel like you are not at the same level as your classmates. I certainly did. I remember lying about what level of math I had taken because I'd only taken like AB calculus, but everyone else had taken BC and I felt really inferior about that. So I lied to everyone. But I think that if you want something and you're willing to study for it and put in the work, you just got to do it. Like people are going to tell you that you can't. And it's really heartbreaking to have people tell you that just based on like who you are, your gender identity, what you look like. But I put in a lot of work for a really long time to get where I am today. I'm not going to say that it was easy, but if you want it, you have to go for it, even if it feels like it's not practical or that you don't have the background for it. I had a background 16 years of musical theater, and now I go to Harvard. So I think that you can do it. That's mostly what I want to say. That's awesome. That is the mic drop right there. That was well said. Awesome. <laughs> Just now I go to Harvard. Mic drop. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciated talking to you. I uh, appreciated learning from you and just in general having you in my life. You're a great sister, a great role model to Sophia, but also to me as a younger brother to you as well. So thank you for all you do. And thank you for coming on the show. I really had a great time. Of course. Me too. Thanks so much, Saul. I'll see you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Growth and Jams podcast. My name is Saul. We are hosted by 1718 Media. If you enjoyed the show today, please feel free to give it a rating in the podcast app. Also, follow us on social media at Growth and Jams. Thank you for tuning in.